0: Hi, guys. Welcome to So What Else. If you are new here, So What Else is a podcast about our shared human experience and what we can learn from each other's stories to let us know we're not alone. We are passionate about sharing each other's stories because I think it could bring so much good and so much help to one another, which is why today's guest, Lisa Nadine, is just absolutely perfect for this podcast. She shares today so vulnerably about the death of her son from a drug addiction. Um she talks so much today. There's so much wisdom she talks about her grief journey. She talks about addiction and now she works as an addictions counselor, so she talks a lot about addiction and um statistics and things like that. And she also talks about a journey she went on to learn to master her mind and to learn to get control of her thoughts. It's very, very interesting. There's definitely something in this episode for everyone. So stay tuned. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for coming on So What Else? My pleasure. I'm so glad to finally be able to talk to you. Um, We were introduced through a mutual friend. Well, actually, through my former therapist that I used to work with, Mary. She's amazing. Plug for Mary Huber. (laughs) If you are in New Jersey and looking for a therapist, she is phenomenal. Love, Mary. (laughs) So she actually connected us. Yes, she did. Which is really cool. That's something that I always say. It's really fun The most fun thing I've noticed about having a podcast is that so many people will reach out to me and be like, oh my goodness, like I know this person that I think would be interesting for you or whatever. And now I feel like I have friends everywhere that I never, ever would have met or talked to, but I get to because of the podcast. So it's really cool. That's great. It's a great networking. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before we get started, give everyone just like a little brief, like, who are you? What do you do? Introduce yourself to us.
1: Well, they know my name. It's Lisa. I am a mother of three children. I'm an alcohol and drug counselor uh, in downtown Newark for parolees. I'm getting married in two months. I'm an author. Yes. (laughs) Wrote my first book and uh, The Veil Between Us. And my second and third are in the queue. Ooh. (laughs) Yes. So that's pretty much me in a
0: snapshot. I am looking forward to your second and third books. I just finished your first book, The Veil Between Us, A Mother's Triumphant Journey Through the Unthinkable. Um, And I loved it. I mean, I flew through it. It's Mm -hmm. a really quick read. My listeners know that I have talked, I've talked so much on this podcast about how um, I'm such a fiction reader. Like I love like book club type books, you know, and it's been like an actual discipline for me to have to like, train myself to read nonfiction because it is important. There's so much to read. And I said, like, God heard me when I like said this year that my like new year's resolution was to read more nonfiction because suddenly I got this influx of like guests coming on the podcast that have all written books that I feel like it's important for me to read. And it's, I'm falling in love with reading nonfiction. It's like very, it's like this (laughs) transformative experience for me. I'm glad I could be part of that. Exactly. So it's been great. Um, So listen, your book, there is so much in there. There's so much about your life, your childhood, your upbringing, so many things that happened in your adolescence, your first marriage. Like there's so much in there. We could talk for six hours on this thing. So we're not gonna do that. (laughs) So today we are going to focus primarily on the story of your son, Casey. All right, so I want, but so that the listeners know, This is not the type of thing where it's like, if you listen to this interview, then that's all there is to know about the book. You should still get the book because there's a ton more in there. We're just touching on some of it today, okay? Um, So take us back. Tell me about your son, Casey. I know that you had your daughter, Zoe, first, and then Casey came along. Kind of tell me about him and his life and just kind of walk us through that.
1: When I had my daughter... I didn't understand why people didn't have like litters of children. <laughs> because she made just little tiny noises when she was hungry. And if you said no, she didn't repeat that behavior. And she slept like eight hours right out of the gate. Oh my gosh,
0: a dream.
1: And she would wake up and you'd just see her smiling like life was great. And so I was like, babies are great. And I want like (laughs) 20 of them. (laughs) Oh my God. You're
0: like, why do people complain about this? It's so easy.
1: Yeah. And you know, she was also my first baby. So it's mitten and head over heels in love. And Casey was unexpected. And, you know, I had this anticipation, first of all, that I wouldn't love him as much as I loved my daughter because I couldn't see how, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I gave birth to him and any mother knows you give birth and somehow it happens. The magic happens. There's room in your heart. There's the same amount of expansive love. But Casey came out of the womb right away. Angry. (laughs) They (laughs) called him the angry linebacker.
0: Oh my God. Because he came
1: out beat red and screaming his head off. And that was the beginning of my adventures with my son. So a lot of what I experienced with Casey as a baby, as a toddler- Um, as a middle-aged school child was always told, oh, it's just a boy, it's just a boy, it's just a boy. And some of that is true, but (laughs) unfortunately, a lot of it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Um, Casey was extremely um, sensitive, Um, had so much empathy at a very young age. He felt emotion, really intensely and he was um he was the rule breaker he was the opposite you told him no don't touch that and he would slide his fingers to the itty bitty end of that object and look at you like well I ain't touching it oh yeah and I was like and, and he was funny so that was one of my daughter's biggest complaints that he got away with some things because I always laughed and lost my power right
0: yeah
1: oh I have one of those yes yeah um as an infant, he he was very uh, he. They just they called it colic at the time. Um, just was he was always uncomfortable and crying. And I, don't, I look back and I wonder what was really going on in his little tiny baby brain. Yeah, um, that was actually the very first time I learned the power of, of of thoughts and how they produce energy and how people can pick that up, especially babies to their mothers, but. Caitlin, know this. I did not make that connection then. It was mm-hmm. decades later, yeah. decades later that it was my first introduction to that power. At mm-hmm. the time, I just thanked God for the breakthrough, but I remember the that I tried everything, everything to bring my child comfort, make him mm-hmm. stop crying and get some sleep. And it wasn't until I surrendered accepted that I wasn't getting sleep, accepted that I could not comfort him, accepted that he would scream until he fell asleep and it might be for five minutes. And all I did was stay present and comfort him and Mm -hmm. rub his back. And I think I write about that in my book. Mm -hmm. We both slept for the first time after I gave birth and it was the beginning of of our love story.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So uh, further along, uh, he was... He was sort of like a daredevil, an adrenaline junkie, a little rebel, but he had trouble learning. He was diagnosed with ADD. Um, He experienced some bullying at 11 years old. Uh, And I'm going to tell you, as I tell you some of the things he was going through, what I know now, like to incorporate the two into something cohesive. I think we all know what bullying looks like, but it was not as seriously taken at that time. When I was a kid, it was part of growing up. It was kids yep. being kids. When my son was growing up, it wasn't considered, I don't want to be dramatic here, but it wasn't considered an emergency situation right, or a threatening situation. It was mm-hmm. considered, oh, it's not nice. Stop that kind of approach. Yes. Um, but really what research shows is a correlation between bullying, suicide, and substance abuse. Yes. And so that relentless bullying at 11 years old actually had a long-term impact on his brain.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: it contributed to the progression the progression of and the development of his addiction. It's not by itself, but it had a role. It had a role. And it was even though it was short-lived, it was only like for a year, it had a huge impact because of where he was in his developmental stage, yeah. which was 11 years old. Totally. Um so that was a factor I didn't know and that that was part of his journey. Um, also he, because he was an empath and he was very sensitive and emotional, he, he right around the time his father and I were looking down the barrel of divorce, he was entering teenage years, which I'll I'll talk a little bit about the adolescent brain. Mm -hmm. It's got an overactive limbic system, which is where we feel emotions and reactions and It's got an underactive prefrontal cortex where we make rational decisions. Mm -hmm. So think about that combination. Yeah. So a lot of the decisions they make are primarily out of emotion, out of feeling. They're not always rational. That's why as mothers, we say, what were you thinking? And the reality is they weren't. Yeah. They don't see distant consequence. Um, So he had his, again, the stages of his development, his temperament, and his underlining mental illness, which was like, depression and anxiety. There was an underlining something there that was kind of brushed off. He's just a boy. He's just a boy. Mm -hmm. Um, So that collided with a life change, a life stressor, which would be a divorce and a loss of his home. And he really didn't know how to cope with that. And I was coping with it Um, or not coping with it. I was in the middle of it. So he was sort of getting lost, even though I was trying, when you're going through something yourself, even grief is hard to give when you need. Absolutely. so first of all, I'll talk about this probably more in the second book, but Around 12 or 13, I think we all get to a crossroad where there's, and I do this in presentations in schools, where the road splits, right? And one road leads to life and family education, all the things that we aspire, and our parents want us to aspire, and the things, whatever that might be for you, whatever your ideal life is. I want to have a family and a car and a career, or I want to live a, you know, in the be a farmer and live in the suburbs, or I want to be whatever it is that we aspire, good health, prosperity. Then there's the other road, which is slippery, first of all. Once you step on it, it's sort of like a slippery slope. And that's where, you know, if if you stay on that road, it leads to things like sickness and incarceration and substance abuse and loss and, unfortunately, death. And I don't mean just death of the physical body, but I mean death of that alternative choice. Yeah. And I think we get there in adolescence because... When we're younger, we do things dictated by the parents or by the, the guardians who are dictating that life for us and guiding us and helping us navigate. And something happens um, in the developmental stage and it, where we want autonomy and we're breaking free and we're stepping out and transitioning into adulthood where, depending on what that previous life experience was, depending on the social environment... Compiling of our family, the biologics, you know, predispositions, um, it really determines what road we step on. Yeah. And so, without getting too much into the road I stepped on, but it certainly wasn't the life giving one, my son (laughs) was putting his feet. On the road that was ultimately lead to destruction, mm-hmm. and because I was familiar with what that looked like, and I think as parents we're often kind of familiar because we've lived a life right but for me, it's because i I really saw a reflection of my son mm-hmm. um, myself in my son. I knew that he was headed down a path that was not he wasn't really choosing a life giving path, mm-hmm. and um so he started to experiment with um First, it started with probably a cigarette. Mm -hmm. And I think that was just like a curious act of rebellion. Um, But it graduated to a beer and eventually marijuana. And then he just kind of went into an experimental stage. And at this point, he found a lot of social acceptance with this particular grout a group of kids. So he really migrated towards that because now he had a sense of belonging, Mm -hmm. you know, migrating towards kids who are also looking for that sense of belonging and maybe a little bit lost. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is research that says addiction has its roots and a direct relationship with the environment. Yeah. And so he was in that environment.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because like you said, like, okay, like he started with a cigarette and then a beer and then marijuana. And obviously, you know, we know that he fell into a life of addiction. You being an addictions counselor, for people who are listening to this, like there's probably a ton of people listening to this that are thinking like, oh, well, like when I was a teenager, I experimented too. And then like, I just moved on with my life. Why is it that there are some people who can experiment and make quote unquote stupid choices when they're younger? And then it's just kind of something in the past. And for other people, that's not how it plays out. Like, what is your perspective on that? That's a
1: loaded question, but I have an answer. No, no. Because I experimented. Yeah. When I was growing up, but I experimented. I was on that path you Know, I drank, I did drugs, I partied, I was acting out an adult. It was definitely part of my stage of development, but again, like it also had something to do with the preceding life experiences I had that I navigated towards. That um, sometimes it's not that dramatic. Some parents might be listening and say, Well, good, Whew, my kid's safe because he has you know solid family, but that's not necessarily true because our kids. Our influence. They they out the world we live in today has so many stressors piled on the adolescent brain, and the outside influence becomes greater than ours. Um, the issues that we were shielded from, they're exposed to through social media, mm-hmm. um, and we have no control over it in our absence. So, biological traits alone don't make a drug addict, mm-hmm. and so there are taking a broad look at the environment, divorce. Uh, family conflicts, single-parent households, they all are contributing factors to social stressors. And when children become less reliable on their caretakers or their parents, they become more reliable on those peers. So whatever those peers are doing. So that's part of it. Now, I did dodge the bullet of addiction. And this is what I want all parents to hear. And all of those saying, well, it didn't happen to me or my grandpa drank or this. I dodged a bullet that struck my child so if you are fortunate enough to dodge that bullet, it doesn't mean that someone you love will not will take that bullet. And so you, pe- you play a role in it. Mm-hmm. And it's important, as hard as that is for me to say, it's important to know. Mm. Um, ignorance is not bliss, it is death. Mm. So knowledge is power, but knowledge is also life. Mm-hmm. Um, every 7 to 10 seconds someone in America dies of an overdose so that means mm-hmm. K- Caitlin when we're done and those are old statistics now with marijuana being legal and people say oh well that can't kill you but yet marijuana could be a gateway for so many things because it puts you, puts your children in a social environment where there are other children experimenting there's more opportunities to experiment Yeah. the other thing is that the adolescent brain is affected way more than the adult brain because it's still in the stages of development and you're introducing a psychoactive substance, whether it be alcohol or marijuana. Mm-hmm. And this is also a, a, a statistic that is prior to the legalization that there are more than 18 million Americans, 12 and older, using marijuana monthly, and 4. I think 4 million exhibit dependence on it. So there is $450,000 450, emergency visits attributed to marijuana as the factor. So mm. those are, those are, those are not, not even current statistics. So I can't imagine they're better. No, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all important to know that there's a lot of factors here. The predisposition to addiction, if it's the biological component that's in the family, the social component, the world we live in today, everything is designed to be addicting. Think mm-hmm. about the video games. That's a process addiction for a lot of kids. Totally. So it's not a substance addiction, but it's a process addiction. It means addiction has somehow manifested in that child's life through a process. Um, so is process addictions can be gambling, they could be sexual. So those are the things that are outside of the substance. So for me, it could have been the sheer grace of God that I, I didn't succumb to addiction because it was in my family and so was mental health, uh, mental health problems. Uh, but for Casey, I think I use this analogy a lot in speaking. You, When you make a cake, you have flour and eggs and sugar and water and oil and whatever, vanilla, and you mix that all up. Right, and you put it in a bowl, and you have to put it in the right temperature, which would be the environment, the oven, and you get a cake. Right, so the flour alone doesn't make someone a drug addict. Neither does the sugar. And so, you don't need to shake in your boots because your kid has ADD, or you know, you have a divorce in your family. It's not doesn't equate to addiction. That's why the knowledge and the education it just makes you more vulnerable. Yeah. But when you put all of those things together. You get a cake. Well, when you put all of those things together, you get illness, whether it be mental illness, addiction, they're one in the same. And that is really why I dodged the bullet. Um, I was probably missing some of those variables. At a very young age, I um, embraced the dimension of wellness called spirituality Mm -hmm. and developed a very solid relationship with God. And Mm -hmm. I do believe that is why I didn't die from something related to substance abuse or mental health. Um, Mm -hmm. We, as a people may not know, 37% of alcohol abusers, 53% of them are abusing other substances. They have at least one serious mental health condition. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a quote in a psychology book, I believe it's by Cone in in Naba. And it says the same environmental factors that can induce susceptibility to drug abuse can also induce mental and emotional problems. Hmm. The neurochemicals of individuals who are subject to extreme stress can can have such a disruption and unbalance in their reactions. It differs from those of other people and it suggests mental illness. So predisposition to mental illness can also be a contributing factor.
0: Yeah. You know, um, I'm noticing a lot of similar things. You know, months ago, we had Jamie Blaustein on the podcast, who's um, a survivor of addiction, um, drugs, you name it, everything. And he is now um, one of the founders of the Sylvia Mm -hmm. Braffman Mental Health Center in Florida, where they work with um, people recovering from addiction. But he spoke about how this... Their rehab facility is different because it heavily, heavily fuses the two, addiction recovery and mental health recovery. And they talk a lot about how they are completely dependent upon one another and you can't deal with one without dealing with the other. And I notice a lot of similarities in the things that you're saying. I would agree with that. Yeah. I just think that like when you hear it, it's like, yes, you know? Well, it's almost like that, that chicken before the egg kind of- Totally.
1: You know, and what people don't realize, especially in adolescence, I'm just going to touch on this again because there's such a a, a, a pervasive message that marijuana is benign. Yeah. And the legalization of it has given a false sense of its impact. And parents should know that adolescent brains are affected by that because it affects their sense of uniqueness, their ability to learn. They're already got that. Overactive limbic system and the underdeveloped prefrontal cortex. And right in that stage, it can be arrested. It's why I work with 30, 40, and 50 year olds who act like adolescents because there's an arrest in that development because they introduce psychoactive substance in their adolescence. So it's really important to know that it, it controlling learning, memory, the sense of uniqueness. That is emotional regulation, like how many teenagers have emotional regulation to begin with? And now you introduce a psychoactive substance that makes that worse. Those things can actually, there's a study in the University of Maryland that links adolescent marijuana use to psychosis and schizophrenia. Wow. That is not benign. I have a client that I work with who's on antipsychotics and he's only 25 years old and he's been smoking marijuana since 14. He's diagnosed with anxiety issue. He's the textbook explanation of this study. So can I, it's out of my scope of practice, I couldn't tell you if that was the cause of it, but- Based on the evidence being presented in front of me and this young boy telling me this is, I come from a solid family, but this is what I did since I was 14 to manage stress, and now it's legal, so it's no big deal. Uh, it's a big deal. That's
0: huge. I mean, that is so. That really is so
1: huge. Yeah, I think education is the key here for parents. If you don't know, find out. Educate your kids. It's the greatest deterrent to adolescent drug use is a parent's, losing a parent's mm-hmm. talking losing their fear of losing the respect of their parents. So even though it looks like they're not listening or they're rolling their eyes, you're planting seeds that could save their life. So educate them. You know, I hear, oh, I'd rather have them do it at my house or out there. No, what you'd rather have is them not do it at all because they are being seriously impacted by it. So I get that. I wouldn't really judge that a parent wanting to protect their child and saying, well, listen, if they're going to do it anyway, I want it to be under my roof. I get, I, I appreciate that. I'm not judging it but i would i'd say do your homework and plant seeds and stand your grounds and talk about it at dinner and and be a broken record and when somebody you know is drinking and jumps into a pool with a bunch of friends and only four of them make it home because one of them drowned and they didn't notice don't shield your kids from that because they're not being shielded from social media anyway tell them this kid died because he was swimming intoxicated there are circumstances where they suffer consequences from being intoxicated that they otherwise would not suffer. I mean, physical consequences to their health and to their minds because they fell asleep on the street right, or, or got behind a wheel. So you see where that goes, right?
0: Totally. Totally. <sighs> okay. So with Casey, so he's an adolescent, he's, you know, experimenting and- um, there, you talked about in your book how um, something one of his friends died mm-hmm. from drugs, and mm-hmm. that kind of like scared him straight. Like yes. he was like, "Okay, like I'm done with this." Can you kind mm-hmm. of like walk us through that point on with Casey? Yeah, I,
1: you know, I I didn't know that heroin was really on the table for my child. That would right. have been horrific. I had suspected when I was, I picked up my son once after I got a phone call from the police that they found him sitting on a bench half a mile from our house. And they said, looks like he's been drinking and he was young. He's like 16 years old mm-hmm. and it was horrifying to me. Um, so I picked him up and the police officer said, do you know who he's hanging out with? And he told me he's so much older than him and he's got a rap sheet and so I looked him up and it turned out that he was a heroin user and just another lost child. And so I, I was afraid of the company he was keeping. And again, let's go back to the gateway. How did he get there from smoking a cigarette from a loving home in an affluent area? How did he get there mm-hmm. hanging out with someone who was using heroin? You yeah. know, and that particular child died and it, my son was devastated and he, he, he said there was nothing I could do for him. He just wanted to go grave with his friends. So I gave him his space. But then later that night he, he was knocking on the door. He said, I don't have my key, but he just looked at me and I, and fell into my arms and just collapsed bawling. I mean, he was so heavy. He was 16 year old boy Mm -hmm. and I kind of like carried him over to the sofa and he he was just distraught and he said, why not me? Mm. And I have to say, when he said that, I wanted to say, because you don't do heroin, that's why. Right. But I didn't know that for sure. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I was consciously thinking whether he did or he didn't, because in hindsight, if I if I thought that conclusively, I probably would have flipped out. And I was already very proactive in trying to get him help. I mean, I was shouting from the rooftops. My son is in trouble. The signs aren't good. He's not doing well in school. He's hanging out with the wrong people. Anybody who would listen to me, I'd go to the police station. I went to school psychologist. So it wasn't like I wasn't doing anything. And he said, why not me? Why not me? Why Mm. not me? Over and over again, sobbing. And I said, baby, Russian roulette, the bullet (laughs) hit him. And it... Hit him when I said that those words. I could tell by the expression on his face that he was. He made like a uh, a resolve in that moment, and I said, "Baby, now it's the time to live your life. Yeah, the way you like. Don't let his death be in vain. Because one thing I told you, my son was very empathetic. He didn't hang out with this kid because he liked that he did those things. He hung out with him because he wanted to help him. Mm. He hung out with him because he had a unique ability to do what most kids can't do, what I do now as an adult, which is embrace the story behind the behavior and say, well, I'll love you. Mm-hmm. I'll hang out with you. I'll help you. Except he was a child, you know, and I tried to tell him, do you know, if I sat on the floor and you sat in a chair and I said, pull me up, the you could, I could, pull you down quicker than you could pull me up just Mm because of gravity. And that is what you're dealing with, with this situation, with this boy. But my son, you know, had a um, unrealistic goal of rehabilitating this boy and the boy lost his life. And so that was it for him. Mm -hmm. The party wasn't fun anymore. Yeah, This this had consequences. It wasn't fun. Mm -hmm. And so he went from a failing student to the class president. <laughs> mm. and started working out and really pulling himself together. And everybody was like, oh, thank God, you know, Casey's back on track. And I had this intuitive, like, mm, something's not right. Uh, I wasn't convinced yet because mm-hmm. I didn't see. <sighs> Do Did you ever see the movie Leonardo DiCaprio plays in Catch Me If You Can? Yes. Where he like he's so charming and mm-hmm. so brilliant that he's able to pose as like a pilot and yes. like a lawyer and all mm-hmm. these different. I think it's based on a true story too, and he's not qualified for any of those things. They were like, always reminding me of Casey. I yeah. thought he was like so charming and so intelligent that he could mm-hmm. play these roles. I think. He had a
0: false sense of security in what he was able to achieve in that Mm -hmm. situation. So he was doing well, but you had some reservations. But he ended up um, graduating from high school, like Mm -hmm. getting a job. He had an apartment. He was working at a bank. Mm -hmm. And then you got a a call one day um, that he didn't show up for work. Yeah. Yeah. So it had only been like two
1: weeks since he was outside the nest and it was Mm -hmm. too soon. He was only 18 years old. Like I said, I wasn't really comfortable with him not having accountability. Mm -hmm. Uh, I tried to talk him out of that decision. I just didn't think he was ready. I thought, but I know now that it was intentional. He knew if he was with me that I would call him out and discover that he had a problem. Mm -hmm. And so he, I, You know, I did try to help him get a place that was in a safe area. Both his father and I tried to help, which, you know, there's not much you can do when they're 18. So we did what we could to put him in the best place and support that. Um, And he had a job, a full-time job that he secured right out of high school. Mm. After an internship, he was in college full-time. So he was struggling a lot. Yeah. And he came to my house um, just maybe a week or two before his death and he did not look good. He looked skinny and he looked stressed. And when I asked him like, what's going on? Are you doing drugs? He said, no, I'm just stressed out. I made him step on the scale. I mean, he's like, no, no, mommy, I'm just tired. And he kind of collapsed in my arms. And that, Mm. that really frightened me. Cause I was like, oh, it was like, he's emotionally exhausted. He's trying to do this in his own willpower and not too long off. And I'm grateful for that hug now. A couple of weeks later, I got that call. It was early in the morning. I had it, strangely enough, and I talk about this, I woke up with this feeling that was not good. I couldn't pinpoint it, but there was something. Something didn't feel right. And so when I got the phone call, your son is late for work, which was extremely uncharacteristic. He took this job so seriously. He loved that he wore a tie and he wanted an expensive watch when he graduated because bankers wear watches. I mean, he was adorable. He was supposed to be there at 7 a.m., and for him not to be there, just combined with the feeling I woke up with, I, I didn't pause for a moment to think. I knew immediately something was really very, very wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, by this point, the family, his father, his sister, his friends, Facebook, social, social media was putting out, hey, anybody seen Casey. Um, to fast forward, I really do think that this was the intervention of a merciful God who, so I was actually told that he was not at his apartment, that somebody had already driven by and not seen his car. And, um, you could read about the details in my book, but I, I eventually headed to that apartment Mm -hmm. and I was praying, help me find my son, help me find my son. And I do believe that that's what was happening. God was helping me find my son. So I went back to his apartment, and I was able to get in with the help of his roommate. And by this time, I had asked for a police escort because I wanted them to be able to call nine one one because it's now approaching eleven. And I I wanted my son to be like, oh, you know, crap, I'm hungover. Yep. But there was something. It was like a a knowing. I'm not sure I think a lot of mothers have this with their children
0: mm-hmm.
1: maybe not all of us, but I did. I had a, an emotional connection and a spiritual connection mm-hmm. to this particular child. Mm-hmm. There were many times he'd say, "How did you know that? I'd call him at midnight like mm-hmm. there was something very significant about this moment where I knew to, I knew I needed help so I was escorted into the home where I found my breathless baby. So I know you asked me like previously, what was it like to find your child without life? Mm -hmm. And I've heard parents say, oh, I can't even imagine, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but you can. That's all you can do is imagine. And the reason Mm -hmm. I know you can is because the minute we imagine that as mothers, we shut it down because it's just too unbearable. So we can imagine, but we've refused to because it's that bad. And so what happens in that moment, I don't know how to explain it that well with words, but Mm -hmm. it's like this internal loneliness unbelief. It's. I've heard people say it's like losing your limbs to mm-hmm. lose a child. Mm-hmm. And so imagine experiencing some kind of accident and waking up with no arms. Mm-hmm. Everything's different now. I'm alive, but yeah. I'm not sure how I'm going to make life work. Mm-hmm. How am I going to do the things that I've done before without my arms? Do yeah. I even want to live without my arms? Is it Worse to be alive without my arms. And so that is kind of like the feeling you don't, it's this unbelief, the shock, this unnatural feeling that something in the world has just gone grossly wrong. And you're not sure how to get out alive. (laughs) And you're trying to deal with that. And there's this. There's this small, small hope, which is like denial. That somehow, some way, this is wrong. This is not right. what we, what it is. You know, uh, it's just surreal. Mm-hmm. It's it's like uh, you're suddenly in a world that doesn't belong to you. And life is going on around you and the air looks different and you're driving and you're just, its you're in an alter reality. It's Mm -hmm. just the strangest, most lonely, most, the darkest that you can imagine. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, you know, how it was for a while (laughs) and um, it did get better.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That intensity, but that's what it was like, Caitlin. It was like that. <laughs> yeah
0: at what point did you find out his cause of death?
1: It takes a few months for autopsies to come back, but his um roommate told us that he had done heroin the night before, okay, and so the police said this looks accidental and it looks okay. drug related. And I was like, heroin. Like it got to the point of injecting heroin. So apparently um, that day that I told you, he came to me and said that he was tired and I was worried about him. He convinced me it was more um, the stress of trying to be all things and achieve the things that he, you know, the job and the school He did ask for money to see a psychiatrist. And I asked him like, why are you going to a prescribing doctor? Why don't you go to a psychologist? And, but I was so simultaneously relieved that he wanted help that I gave him money. And it turns out, and it was HIPAA law. So I don't, I I didn't know the outcome of that. Um, He didn't tell me, she didn't tell me. And there were only a few weeks in between for me to not even pry. I had dinner plans with him that week that he died to find out what happened, but we didn't make it to dinner. Um, he was prescribed an antidepressant and an antihistamine, a, a which I've come to know was probably given to him to help him with sleep, maybe even withdrawal. Oh. And he rolled the dice one last time. And he, he was, my son was brilliant. I had a lot of suspicion around his death because my son would google and research how much he could get away with and do with certain things so i i found it odd that he would combine yeah street drug with a prescription drug and not know there could be consequences so i mean addiction makes you irrational and you don't think about the consequences because you're desperate just to feel normal. Mm -hmm. And so he was probably desperate to feel normal. He was probably in withdrawal. He probably did refrain from using for a while and couldn't take it. Started this antidepressant and this antihistamine and it still hadn't done its trick yet. And he was probably just looking to feel comfortable in his own skin so he could go to work the following day. And I'm gonna make an assumption that he didn't take a lot because heroin didn't kill my child it was because he had these other heart suppressing drugs in his system that the combination suppressed his heart and he died right there in his pajamas facing his television, all the innocence of a child captured in the most guilty death there is. And I don't mean guilty on him. I mean, Mm -hmm. there was nothing innocent about the way his life was stolen.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm so sorry, obviously, you know, you. for for ex- what you went through and for what you had to experience and still experience to this day. You talk a lot in the book about your grief journey and mm-hmm. how, you know, for a long, long time, your grief like quite literally took your legs out, you know, from under you. Um, I thought you gave a comparison in the book and you compared uh, grief to childbirth because just before Casey had passed away, you had been with your daughter as she was giving birth to her first child. And I just want to read to you a little excerpt from your book. You said, "...in labor, there are moments between contractions where the pain subsides and joyful feelings are present with hopeful expectation for what is to come. Then the contractions come, ushering in pain in varying degrees." The intensity of pain can lead to a loss in perspective and a limited view of the future, leaving you desperate for relief. In those desperate moments of grief that assault me without warning, I cry to God. Without fail, he comforts me with a hope of things to come and the strength to stay in it for the final push. I I had trouble just getting through that quote. It makes (laughs) me very emotional because I really, I can relate to that you know, um, we, we spoke before we hit record about, you know, I experienced the death of my brother and I, I agree with your comparison so much that there are these times in between the waves of grief where you do feel joyful and hopeful and you feel thankful for the times that you had and and things like that. And then grief will wash over you like a contraction. Right. And it'll just like smack you in the face and you just feel like the intensity of this pain is too much. And then it subsides again, you know, and then it comes again, you know, and, um, I just thought that was a very, very beautiful comparison and very accurate and at the end, you said that you have the strength to stay in it for the final push. What does that mean to you? What is that final push?
1: Well, for me, first, I just want to say that that analogy and that description of that ebb and flow is kind of life for all of us. Yeah. Whether it be the grief of losing someone so dear to us or just that life does this, nobody stays straight because if you stayed straight, think about it, it would be a flat line, you're dead. Yeah. So, And it comes in different degrees depending on your life circumstances and your life experiences, whether your valleys are super low and your mountaintops are high and all of that. But it kind of describes the ebb and flow of life. And I think that now embracing the suffering the way I do has given me a different perspective. But we all know pain, whether it is emotional or physical, can really, we could lose perspective. Things start to feel hopeless. You feel like you're drowning. And that's, like you could see even in this podcast, I, I've I've done many, many interviews where I have been able to get through them without really stirring up a whole lot of emotion or having to pause or feeling tears. But today I, I'm particularly struggling because his birthday is next week. Mm-hmm. And what I love about what just happened, first I was like, oh, I really wish I wasn't ready to cry because I'm the whole thing is I'm about hope.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I did, I got emotional and then you got emotional. That's kind of it. It's like, Mm -hmm. we can embrace that. We can embrace the fact that we have this in common as human beings. We have emotion, we have pain, we can be vulnerable. And so the final push for me is what my book is about, The Veil Between Us. It's the push through the veil. It's when there is no separation, there is no divide. You know, it's the final push is like when you push in labor, right? The final push is the birth of life. Yeah, It's it's like the the reward, it's the life. Here's your baby, all that pain, all that suffering. Suddenly you'll do it again. Yeah, maybe not that day, but (laughs) that day you're like, I never will do that again, right? Never, (laughs) right? And then, you know, a year or two later, you're like, I want a baby. You forget. Why? Because the reward was that great. Yeah. And so, and the love is that great. Because if, you know, the reality is suffering ends. It comes to an end. Life and love do not. Mm -hmm. They will always pervade. They will always prevail. They will Mm -hmm. be present. Suffering Mm -mm. comes and goes. And I say this too suffering and joy. I used to think you can't have one. If you're suffering, you don't have joy. If you have joy, you're not suffering. Not true. They can run simultaneously on the same track. So if you are in the heart of grief right now and you laugh at something, don't feel guilty. Mm -hmm. because they're supposed to run simultaneously. That's how you get through it, to Mm -hmm. know that there's still life, there's still hope, there's still joy, there's still breath. The final push is when this stops, when the suffering, that ebb and flow is no more. And I believe that, and I choose to believe that suffering ends, Mm -hmm. but life does not. And that the story is written already, the end is written already, and it's glorious. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't choose to believe that, this journey wouldn't be so exciting. It would be like being pregnant forever. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the final push to me is the goal, the destiny, the finish line. And Mm -hmm. is it, and I don't mean the finish from life. I mean the finish from pain, the beginning of life.
0: That's beautiful. Um, Okay. So earlier on, you mentioned how like you through your grief journey and your healing process, you learned to get control of your mind and things like that. And you talked a little bit about that. I want to go deeper into that. You said at your in your book at one point, you said, my grief journey – Turned out to be a window into my soul that brought healing to my mind. I continued my education to include studies of the brain and how toxic thoughts generated in early childhood create negative core beliefs that operate in our subconscious and influence our life experience. This whole section of your book I found to be fascinating. Everything that you talked about from Switch on Your Brain by Dr. Caroline Leaf and how you did the 21 Brain Detox, like all of that I thought was very, very fascinating um, would you talk to us a little bit about that, about how our negative thoughts can like impact our physical bodies and things like that?
1: Absolutely. And this is um, out there, people. This information, this knowledge, this education. I didn't make this up. Mm-hmm. This is science. <laughs> this is psychology. It's out there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think being a Christian um, and having faith and having spiritual beliefs in scripture and everything, somehow I separated science from, from, Spirituality. Somehow yes. I divided them because I didn't want to be new age and I was afraid of, you know, I am so protective of my relationship with God because it has carried me through so much throughout my life that I don't even want to take the chance. I might be going down a road that doesn't honor him. Yeah. But it actually caused me to be um limited in some of the resources that he has actually provided for us. And science is one of them. So I have now incorporated my belief system to include science and um, the power of the minds and energy, everything. it's it's this is um not only logical, but it is scriptural and and that is my interpretation. Yeah. Um, it's my opinion. it is subjective. I get that, but this is how I choose to believe, and that's why I can experience suffering and embrace adversity with a different mindset. It's Mm -hmm. because of the things I've learned and what I've chosen to believe. And you'll hear me say, chose, I chose, I chose. Because that's part of mastering the mind. You have to recognize what you can and cannot control. Mm -hmm. One of the things we teach a lot in addictions to clients is the serenity prayer. You know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have, it could be universal God because that's not the point of this prayer, but it's accept the things I cannot control.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: help me change the things I can and give me the wisdom to know the difference. In my experience in life, more times than not, the only thing we can control is our response. The only thing. And where does the response come? From our perception and our thoughts. Mm -hmm. So our thoughts, here's some CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Our thoughts, our perceptions produce our emotions, which in turn, so it's thoughts, feelings, behavior, our behavior, Mm -hmm. AKA our response. So if I, I'm going to give you a simple analogy of that. If I was to perceive my, I prayed for my son for five years. Mm -hmm. Well, I prayed for him for 18, because that's how long he lived. But I'm saying when I knew my son was in crises, I wasn't sitting there in denial. Right. I didn't know the severity of what was going on, but I knew he was in trouble and Mm -hmm. I did everything I could to change the trajectory he was on. Mm -hmm. So, knowing that and knowing that I'm a woman of faith now, remember this, this doesn't happen when you have great faith, right? Praying for my child to be healed, to be free, Mm -hmm. to come back to faith, to hang out with the right people, but ultimately, heal him, God. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, God did heal him, (laughs) but that was not what I meant. Mm -hmm. So, If I was to look at my son's death like God didn't answer my prayers, Mm -hmm. why pray? My son is gone. I have to live the rest of my life without him. I will not see him get married. I will not see him have children. I will, until I take my last breath, I will feel his absence. Mm That is true. Mm -hmm. If I choose to focus on that, it would produce feelings of discouragement. It would minimize my faith. It would cast a shadow over the good that's still in my life. Mm -hmm. And so my behavior would be somewhat restricted. I might not be as engaged with friends. I might not take chances. I might be paranoid with my younger child. There's a whole correlation of stuff. But if I look at my sons. First of all, God did heal him. I was at a point in my life and my walk with God, and I'm grateful for this, that I didn't blame him. My my reaction was, I know you love me so much. So I tried to always think about the way I love my own children, which is just a little, you know, it doesn't even compare to the love of God, but it's all we have to measure it on, right? There are times I have allowed my kids to go through things or I have disciplined them or delivered consequences that they don't understand. I hate you. You're so mean. Mm -hmm. You know, we've heard that. But why? The ultimate goal is I love you. I'm trying to protect you. This might not feel comfortable, but if I let you do that, it would be far worse. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, or I shouldn't say moment, but in that time period, I knew that God loved me so much. So my question was, oh, what was going to happen? Mm -hmm. To him, to me, to us, to someone else's child, that this was necessary. Mm -hmm. Right. So I knew, and that became like the grief driven journey that I mentioned. What was the why? What was the purpose? Because I knew there had to be purpose because God would not have broken my heart like that. I know he wept with me. Mm -hmm. I know he wept with me. So why was it necessary to weep with me over Mm -hmm. this? Why wasn't there another way? So once I embraced that, I was actually spared. My son was spared from something. Worse than what what I experienced, which I couldn't even imagine. Right?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: If I took that even further, as I began to do that and choose to think, I allowed myself. First of all, I allowed myself to grieve. Mm-hmm. I processed those emotions. I cried. I still allow myself. You can hear it in this podcast. Mm-hmm. I still allow myself to feel emotion. And Mm -hmm. emotion is an energy. If I hold it in, it's going to stay in. It's going to affect me. If I process it, it, I become an observer of it. The difference between that is when the emotion's in, it's in control of you. When the emotion's out, you're in control of it. Mm -hmm. So I'm in control. I can sit here and have a breakdown or get choked up, but I can recover because it's here. I see you. I acknowledge you. I'm back. So that's kind of like the discipline I learned in my mind. And then I started to realize there's actually a scripture that says, cast down your imagination and every high thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ, bringing all your thoughts into captivity and obedience, right? Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. If you're not a Christian, change it. Change the words because it's still science. I don't suggest you separate the two, but that power of the mind will work even if you do. (laughs) The the science will work even if you do because it's neuroscience.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So I started to do that. I started to put that into practice really out of survival. Yeah. So once I started to choose what I was going to think about and shift and focus on what was working and focus, I was on a journey, a grief-driven journey. i got to find purpose in my son's death without realizing in my quest to find purpose in his death, I found purpose in my life. Mm. I became, I got in sync with my destiny. So now that I always stayed on the side of prevention after he died because it was safe and I didn't want to be in perpetual grief and I don't want to be in the heart of addiction and because my son didn't fit the criteria so why would I work with someone right out of prison who's on drugs who was raised in the inner city that's not me that's not him I don't need to relate to that kind of mentality but I wasn't ready
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, um, but each each step of the journey got me further further into into that call into that destiny that uh I I could say to you today, seven some odd some, seven years later, that I'm in. I know why I was put on Earth. I know why I'm here. I can identify my gifts. I can see them in operation. I know that the I could never be as effective as I am if I had not gone through what I went through, because it was in the darkness that my character was shaped. It was in that darkness that I learned to master my mind. It was in that darkness that I got education. So that catapulted me to where I needed to be. So I. this is why I. I no matter what it is, no matter how bad it is, no matter how dark it appears or it is light comes light mm-hmm. comes and it could be just a speck that you can follow mm-hmm. you know and you will get through you will get through the other side and when you emerge if you embrace adversity as a launching pad into destiny as mm-hmm. a catalyst to better things there will be better things mm-hmm. if you say what is the invitation in this don't do that before you grieve you can't yeah. do but i'm saying when you get to that first you grieve First, you grieve, you process, you grieve, you cry, then you start to move. And in between, you process, you grieve, then you move. You could hear, I still grieve. He's my son. So when I think about what could have been, and I see his beautiful face, it hurts. But I choose not to stay in that place because it does not serve me. It doesn't serve anybody, Mm -hmm. right? So I just, I say, okay, ouch, there are days where I, you know, I might go visit him at the grave, give it a good cry, yep. take a deep breath you know, and reset. So Absolutely. it's a process. It's an ongoing process.
0: Uh, does that answer your question? Absolutely. I think that that's, it's so important because you're not saying like, ooh, here's like a magic thing that you could do to make you not sad anymore. Like that's, that, that's not reality, right? If you've been through a trauma, you are experiencing grief unfortunately, like you're going to be grieving until you die. You are, you're never going to stop missing Casey. I'm never going to stop missing my brother. That's just like the reality of the situation. But I love how you're saying how, you know, we could let our grief completely overtake us and essentially ruin the rest of our lives. Or we can allow ourselves the space to grieve the space to be sad and all of that. And then take control of our minds and our thoughts And not allow ourselves to become like a shell of a person, Mm -hmm. you know? And like you said, like, you're living an abundant life. You're thriving. You're helping others. You've used his death to save other people. You know, I um, interviewed Davey Blackburn, who's a pastor, and he started Nothing Is Wasted Ministries. And his wife was brutally murdered in their home. And he says, you know, like— Obviously, if he could go back and change that, would he? Yeah, of course. Like he would never choose for his wife to be taken from him like that. But he has not allowed her death to be wasted. And he's now dedicated his life to helping people process their grief and process their trauma. You know, so it's he's making it purposeful. That doesn't mean that he doesn't grieve. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have sadness. But he's taken control of his mind in that sense that he's not allowing this to just completely take him out you know, and be just like a non-functioning human because of this trauma.
1: Right. And you got to think if it's that, that much of a loss and it is, you don't want it to be in vain. Right. So there's two ways to go. You could just die with them and still have breath. Um, I had entertained that in the beginning, not physically die, but just surrendering to the pain and becoming a shell of myself. But, um, I don't even know if I actively choose, chose not to. I just think I had a strength outside my own and I took it and I said, okay, I can't get through this without you help. So uh, for a long time I was like on life support, but I was alive. Uh, it's really what it's about mastering your mind, casting down your imagination, um, Choosing what you will believe, choosing what to focus on isn't so that you could. I don't live a happy life all the time just because I've done this. I still have adversity. I still have emotions. I'm a human being. I still have conflict. I still cry. I still get mad. Um, It's more about giving you the hope. It helped when you have this going on in your mental space. It goes back to what I said earlier you don't have to suffer and not feel joy. You don't feel joy and not have to suffer. You can, and it doesn't have to be as extreme as suffer. It could be pain versus not pain. They can be on simultaneous tracks. They're not one way streets. You're not going, the sufferings here and this. you pick the road. No, no, no. It means that life is going to have that ebb and flow. You are going to have conflict. You are going to have adversity. Nobody gets away with it. Yes, some of us have more than others, but I'll tell you this. The people who change the world or leave a legacy or break generational curses who make a difference for the next generation, take a look at their lives. Corrie Ten Martin Luther King, uh, Helen Keller. They're not easy lives. They're riddled with pain, loss, and suffering. But look at the impact that they left. Mm-hmm. For me, if I'm going to be here, when I go, I want to leave an impact. I want to leave a message for the generations, for my lineage to carry on, to be better, to learn
0: more, to experience joy, to overcome adversity. Absolutely. I mean, I I was so struck by the stuff that you said um, from Dr. Caroline Leaf's book and how she says in her book um, that like 75 to 98% of physical or behavioral illness is a result of a toxic thought life. That like, that bowled me over because i that's like personal for me. I struggle with that a lot. Like I'm a 1 on the enneagram. I have a very 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 loud inner critic and i i i I speak to myself horribly. You know, like i it, things i would i say to myself I would never say to somebody else. You know what I mean? And and um I was reading that. And I reread that section like a few times. And I was just like, this is so important to, to, to understand this, that your toxic thought life, your negative thought life, it's not just your thought life. It's your life. Like it comes out in your body, you know? And I just thought that was so huge how you talked about that in conjunction with your faith. This isn't like a choose, like, oh, like if you have faith, it doesn't matter, like just, it doesn't matter about any science, any neuroscience, any study of the brain, any thought things, like whatever, like none of that matters. It No, they go together.
1: That's right, because you don't want magic wand thinking. It's yes, it's, it's not realistic. It's not uh, people aren't gonna to relate to you, they're probably not even gonna to listen to you because they're living the real life. And so there's no magic wand thinking here. And the, the reality is I could say, Oh, Caitlin, you could say, I, you know, I people have told you, Oh, Caitlin, you're beautiful, you're a good mother, right? And so you right. could say to me, I'm beautiful, I'm a good mother. But in your if your inner dialogue is saying you could do better. You know, you're not really attractive. You failed here. Your brain is looking for evidence to support what you believe, not what you say, what you believe. So you're going to step out into the universe. You're going to wake up in the morning and your brain is going to look for the evidence for your core beliefs. Core beliefs are usually established younger. And then we spend our lives looking to support what we believe. So if you say in my book, I've said, I'm not enough. I'm not enough to keep him around. So I'm not enough. Your brain looks for evidence to support that. Well, how's it going to do that? You're going to continually attract the same type of person or the same such a situation to recreate that childhood and to bring evidence to what you believe. So if yeah. you don't change that, so you tell me, you're telling me, I have an inner dialogue that's toxic. I say bad things about myself. So- my advice, my suggestion is stop it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and what I mean by that is every time you catch that, be mindful of your thoughts, first of all, become, mm-hmm. start taking thought inventory. And the way that you could do that is you're not going to be like trying, you don't consciously say, What am I thinking? You'll be able to tell by what you're feeling. So, if you suddenly feel like kind of down in the dumps or frustrated or you're reacting short with your kids, stop for a minute and say, What? Am I thinking in this moment? It'll be such a revelation for you. Yeah. So you'll you'll stop. What was I just thinking? What was my thoughts? may have nothing to do with them. You had a dream. You woke up and you were thinking, today's going to be a crappy day because that was a horrible dream. That was your thought. So now your brain's looking for evidence to make your day crappy. Yeah. So And that's a, a, not the greatest analogy, but it goes like that. If you wake up and you look in the mirror and you say, oh, I'm ugly... Your brain looks for evidence. If you wake up in the morning and there's clothes on the floor and your husband forgot to do something, you say, I always have to do everything by myself. Your brain looks for the evidence to support that. So you're going to start to create situations where you're doing things by yourself and you're going to be blaming people, but you created that life experience. They didn't. So you got to change that dialogue by saying, what what is going right? Where do you see good? Where do you see God? And you have to say, you know, I'm so grateful I'm a mom and I'm going to teach my kids how to clean this up. And I, you know, whatever, you start speaking more positive about the situation. You're not, you're rewriting it, but you're also, you, you don't want to make the mistake of denial and dismissing it. you got right. to address, I feel this way, this is why, but there's a positive component in that. I am capable. I am loved and supported. Maybe not in this moment, but overall, I'm t- I am loved and supported. I've got to communicate my needs. I'm going to communicate my needs. I am this and you, I ams are to be positive. I am successful. I am beautiful. I am a good mother. I am capable. I feels, or for the emotion, I feel depressed. I feel frustrated. There's a difference. It's not your identity. Mm -hmm. And once you label the emotion and you see it, it's no longer here. It's here. Mm -hmm. I am is here. you know, and that's like a core belief. So I think it's really important to do a lot of thought inventory. If you have an inner dialogue or self-talk that's negative, it is a discipline. I will tell you that, but you can change it. Mm -hmm. Um, You could go as drastic as taking an expo marker and writing, I am all over your mirror to remind you who you are. I did this after I did that work with Caroline Leaf. I am powerful. I am healed. I am free. And I just wrote down, I am enough. I am worthy. I am beautiful. People have told me I'm, I'm attractive my whole life, but I never felt beautiful, right? I'm smart, but I never really felt intelligent. So yeah. I started to write down these things. I'll, I would say things, oh, I'm never going to get there because I don't have an advanced education and that, da, 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 da. I stopped saying that. I said, mm-hmm. I am totally qualified for this. I am. And now, all those things I wrote in Expo Markers about myself, true story. I wake up and I look in that mirror. There's nothing written on it, but I see her. Mm-hmm. And I could tell you, I am powerful. I am yeah. impactful. I am successful. And I am qualified because it manifested.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's so good. It's so good. I have like nothing I could possibly add to that. That's It's just like so good. Such good food for thought. A wonderful takeaway. <sighs> um. You know, something that I feel like people sometimes struggle with Christians because Christian, like people who don't identify as being a Christian will maybe struggle with Christians because we sometimes are tempted to use like trite sayings when somebody goes through a tragedy and we say something like, well, like God's in control, you know, or God has a plan. And that's not like super helpful for someone who's dealing with a tragedy And so something that I really appreciated in your book is that you called it out and you said, I want to read this quote, you said, knowing God does not remove tragedy or eradicate the effect sin has on my life, but it sustains me, gives me hope, and enables me to see beyond the grave. Yeah. I mean, that stopped me in my tracks because as Christians, that does not mean, like you said, That's not going to remove tragedy from our lives. It's not going to remove sadness. It's not going to remove any of the pain that we experience here on earth, but it does give us hope for beyond the grave. I think that the work that you do um, now as a result of your son's death is just a perfect example of not letting your pain be wasted. And you have now saved other people's lives because of what you've now dedicated your life to the work that you do now?
1: I do think that life always comes from death. Mm. So if you think about winter, the leaves fall into the ground only to bring life again. Yeah. It is just a cycle. So I don't know how many lives I save, but God definitely uses me to, to give them hope and to save their lives. But I'm really just An open and willing vessel who has allowed my pain to be a catalyst for them. Yeah. So I'm just willing. That's all I
0: really am. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Lisa, I cannot thank you enough for being willing to speak to me, to share your story. I mean, there's so much here. You know, we talked about addiction. We talked about grief. We talked about your mind. Like, I mean, there's so much here we could go on for forever. So everyone buy her book. Again, it is called The Veil Between Us. It is available on Amazon. Buy her book. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, There's just a lot in there. Um, I am just so thankful that you were willing to come on and share with us and be vulnerable because I know, um, like you said, you know, Casey's birthday is coming up and that's a really- tender, sensitive time. And I know that, you know, Joe's birthday is coming up and it just like, you always just feel a little more fragile, you know, when those dates are coming around. Um, so I feel really honored that you were willing to come and speak with us. And I know that this is going to touch a lot of people. So we just thank you so much.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: And just good luck. And we wish you nothing but joy and happiness in your upcoming wedding and marriage.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Best to all of you as well.
0: Thanks so much. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CaitlinElliott.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if you want to toss us a five-star rating, I would love you forever. Check us out next week for another new episode. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at else. Editing and all that stuff by Matt Carpenter with Parable Productions.